All right, I'm going to take our Bible this morning and invite you to take yours and turn to James chapter 2. We have been now in the book of James for some time, and I realize many of you are visiting today, and I'm so glad that you're here. Let me catch you up quickly to where we are. We're in the second chapter. We'll begin looking at verse 14, and we are going to be looking this morning at the most or the, uh, the, the passage that is the theological heartbeat of the book. This is the most theologically significant and the most complex passage in the entire book. James is a book about faith. James's big point, if you remember as we've been going through the book together, is this, that you are part of a big kingdom. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 1. The Messiah has come. He has gathered his people together. He has established them as members in uh, a new kingdom or of a new kingdom. But that kingdom hasn't come yet. And so while you're members of that big kingdom, you have been placed strategically by the king in all the little kingdoms of the world. And he has a mission for you. He describes it uh, in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. You know that passage as a Sermon on the Mount. He uses the illustration of salt and light. You are to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. James's way of talking about that is that as you are ambassadors of the big kingdom in all the little kingdoms of the world, here is your mission. You are to display a living faith to that dying world. And James has been talking about that faith. In fact, the word faith occurs 11 times in this short book. And what James has to say about a living faith is this. A living faith is wholehearted, it is single-focused, and it is fully trusting in God and in his word. And we've said that together every Sunday since we began our journey with Pastor James. And so I think we should say that again this morning when we think about the message in front of us. James is, is, is asking us as members of God's kingdom to display a certain kind of faith to the kingdoms of the world. And that faith, and let's say it together, must be wholehearted, single-focused, and fully trusting. Can we say it one more time? That faith must be wholehearted, single-focused, and fully trusting in God and in his word. And so as we began noting uh, in James chapter 1, James is going to tell us how that faith is formed. It's formed through trials and through tests. And we saw that in the very first section of James chapter 1. And as that faith is formed and, and, and matured, as it grows and strengthens, it will oftentimes face temptations. And so a, a living faith in God and in his word is a faith that resists temptations. And the way that that faith came into being was that God sent down a perfect gift from above. He sent down wisdom from above, and through that wisdom, through the word of truth, you were birthed into the kingdom of God. And therefore, James says, now you need to do something with that word. You need to be quick to hear that word. You need to be quick to receive that word. You need to come to that word with a single focused heart. You need to come to that word with no division in your mind about its nature and its truth and its goodness. And you're to be a hearer of that word and not just someone who looks in a mirror and walks away. You're to be a hearer and a doer of that word. And so that's kind of where James left us at the end of chapter one. Last week, we came back And James reintroduced us to the necessity of a wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith. 
And he said to us, there is something that will damage that faith. There is something going on that will discredit the, the, the message of that faith and distort its beauty. When you think about the beauty of what God has done in giving you mercy, in extending mercy to you, and as he calls you to display that mercy to the kingdoms of the world, there's something that will damage, something that will distort or discredit the faith that you claim to have, and it is the sin of partiality. And we talked about that uh, from James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 and going all the way through verse 13. And we noted that the sin of partiality happens when we serve. And we serve in order to get. We look at somebody and we decide that we're going to serve them because of what they can do for us. Or we want to make a show of our service. We want people to know that we're serving. And so Jesus used the illustration of a, a towel and a basin and washed the disciples' feet, not to make a show, not to announce that he was a servant, not to kind of make sure they knew how good a servant he was, but because they needed to be served. And so James is going to come back to that idea, and he's going to talk about what damages our faith when we serve others because of what they can do for us. And that brings us to the section that we are looking at in verse 14, where James is actually going to go at our faith from a very different standpoint. And he's going to ask us a question. And the question is, do you have living faith? Is the faith you have a faith that will actually save you? And so let's begin by noting that James starts off by observing something. And here's, what, here's the, sort of the big message that James has for us this morning. Claiming to have saving faith is not the same thing as actually having saving faith. Claiming to have saving faith is not the same thing as actually having that faith that saves and so that's where James is going. And so as we, we talked earlier on that sometimes we need to just sit and let James pastor us. And so this is one of those moments where James is going to come and he's going to ask some very penetrating diagnostic questions about the faith we claim to have. Because in his day, remember, he's writing to believers that are attending churches that are scattered all throughout the little kingdoms of the world of his day. And just like in our day, we have people who claim to have faith. In James's day, there were people who claimed to have faith. They, they would claim to believe all the right things about Jesus Christ. They had heard the gospel. They had heard who he was. They had heard about his birth. They had heard about his life. They had heard about his death. They had heard about his resurrection. And they would give mental assent to everything they heard. They would agree with the facts of the gospel. We would call this kind of a faith head faith or belief faith or creedal faith. James's idea of this kind of a faith is that it is a word-only faith. It is a faith that doesn't go beyond words. The words are great. The words are true. The words are right. But this kind of faith doesn't go any deeper in our life than just the words. 
And just like there are people in our day who would have that same approach to faith, there were people in James's day who would have that approach to faith. And so uh, James is actually building on a warning that Jesus gave earlier when he was talking to people who would claim that they had a relationship with the Lord. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, in other words, not everyone who claims that I am their Lord, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That is a jaw-dropping statement, if you stop and think about it. Here are a group of people, and all of them would be saying the same thing. They would be making the very same claim. Jesus, you are our Lord. That's the claim. And Jesus is looking at that same crowd who's making that same claim, and he is saying, now there are some of you who will enter into the kingdom of heaven, and there are some of you who won't. Think about the implication of that for James's hearers. I mean, James is literally saying to people who are in a church service like this one, some of you are going to enter into heaven and some of you are not. And it's not because you disagree on the words. You have the same claim. So Jesus actually gives you a little hint about the difference between the two. They have the same words, but there are some people who have something more than just words. Jesus said, not everyone who enters Uh, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There's a group of people who have a faith that goes beyond just their words. There's something alive about that faith. There's something active about that faith, and that faith does something. It does the will of the Father. And that's where James is going. James is saying to all of us this morning, like he would be saying to the readers of this book, the claim that you have to faith needs to be validated. There is a validation that has to happen to the faith that you claim to have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he begins this sort of idea with this piercing question. And the question you can see in verse 14 is this, what good is it? my brothers, so he's talking to people who would claim to be believers, what good is it if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that kind of faith save him? What good is it when you claim to have faith in Jesus Christ, but that faith has no life force that is at work in you producing faithfulness to the word of God in your life. James says that kind of faith can't save you. And so he's going to sort of lay out for them this idea. He's going to bring a circumstance into their life to kind of help them see uh, the reality of what he's saying. Now, if you don't mind, go back to verse 13 and notice where these people are that James is talking to. Uh, Look at verse 12. I should have had you go all the way back to verse 12. He says, so speak and act as those who are about to be judged under the law of liberty. 
And then he says an amazing thing. He says, judgment without mercy to one who has shown mercy. Uh, I'm sorry. Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Something has happened to us that has taken the law and the condemnation of the law and the judgment that is rightfully upon us and totally transformed it. And the thing that has happened to us is mercy. We have received mercy. And so here are these people, and they're now in a congregation, and James says, now let me give you an illustration of what should be happening in the faith that you claim to have. If you claim to have faith in God, it should be wholehearted, it should be single-focused, and it should be fully trusting. And, And so let me give you an example of what should happen when it actually shows up in your life. And he talks about a person that comes into their midst. And you can see this in verse 15. If a brother or a sister. So now we're talking about a believer. If somebody comes into your midst, so somebody comes into your assembly, and they are poorly clothed and they are lacking in daily food. So here's here's the picture. Here's a believer. You know this person. This is not a stranger. This is not somebody that you don't have awareness of. This person comes into your presence, comes into your assembly, and it's immediately obvious to you that they are in desperation. They are in dire straits. They are, they are naked. They are unclothed. And that idea there is that they, are, they have absolutely almost nothing to wear, and, and they are about to perish with cold. And they don't even have the food necessarily for, for daily survival. They, they are on the very brink of perishing. They are hungry and they are thirsty and they co- or, or, or cold and they come into your midst and here's what they get from you. They get good words. That's what they get. You see them and you come up to them and you look at them and you just, with all the compassion of your heart, you say to them, go in shalom. And you give them a blessing. This is exactly what James is talking about. And then you offer a prayer. You say to them, be warmed and filled. May may God warm you and may God fill you. So you give them a blessing, sort of the divine blessing that you see in the Shema, and then you give them a prayer. You say to them, go in peace, go in shalom. May you be warmed. May you be clothed. And James has a question for you. If you do this without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? In other words, how useful are those words? And the answer is obvious. The words are absolutely useful. No matter how good they are or how pious they are or how prayerful they might be, if you've got a brother or a sister and you know this person and you see that they are in dire need and they have no clothing and they have no food and they're about to perish and all you do is give them a benediction and a prayer and you give them nothing that they need for their physical deliverance, what use are your words? And James is now going to come And he's going to expose what's really going on in their faith. So also, in the same way, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It is lifeless. 
So remember the question in verse 14, can that kind of faith save? James just answered the question. That kind of of faith won't even deliver somebody in this life, much less somebody in the life to come. And the reason it won't deliver is because it is dead. Now, that that brings us to the second main idea in the text. And, and, And by this time, if you're listening carefully to James and you have this kind of a faith, you would say, no, 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 I actually believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's actually somebody I acknowledge. I know the truth about him. I believe he's the Messiah. I believe he's the true God of heaven. And I have the right belief, James, how in the world do you get off judging my faith? How do you know whether or not my faith is real or not? Where do you get off judging my faith? So, so now James is going to come and he's going to address this personal challenge that has come up. And you can see how he introduces, someone will say. James is anticipating this argument. He says, all right, now somebody is going to bring up this point. Somebody's going to say, you have faith and I have works. So, so there are going to be two people and one of them is going to say, I have faith. And the other person says, I have works. And now he's going to start the conversation. He's going to say to the one, show me your faith without works. And I will show you my faith with works. So we just found something out that's really important. Both people are talking about faith. Both people are talking about faith. One of the persons in the conversation is saying, I have faith and my faith is all words. And the other person is talking about faith that works. And James says to the one that doesn't have any work, show me your faith. Prove to me that you have faith and don't use any works in the process. And the answer is you can't. There's no way to validate a word-only faith without using works. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about when he was healing a man who had been paralyzed for many, many years. And the man is let down through the roof, and Jesus looks at him, and the first thing he says to him is, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And the rabbis that were standing around listening to this immediately started thinking things in their heart about Jesus' words. And and what they were thinking in their heart was this, he has no right to say that. He has no ability to forgive sins. He has no authority to forgive sins. There's no way he can be saying that because there's only one person who can forgive sins and it's not him. It's God. Remember this story? So here is Jesus and he just said words. He said to that man, your sins are forgiven. The rabbis are incensed at this because he has no authority to forgive sins. He has no ability to forgive sins. And you remember what Jesus said? He knew what was going on in their hearts. And he said to them, so that you will know, so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said, now, let me ask you a question. Which is easier to say? Remember that question? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? 
or take up your bed and walk, which is easier to say. And on an earthly level, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because how do you know? How do you know? I mean, I could just say it and then you just, you know, how are you going to say that it didn't happen? But if I say take up your bed and walk, then what? There's a way for you to test that. Did the man take up his bed and walk? And so Jesus looks right over at those men after asking them that question, which is simpler to say, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk? And then he says, so that you will know that I have authority to forgive sins on earth. And he looks right down at the man and he says, take up your bed and walk. And all of a sudden that man did what? He took up his bed and he walked. So this is the kind of argument that James is making now between these two people. One says, I have faith, and the other says, I have validating faith. And James says to the one who only has word faith, show me your faith. And the implication is you can't. There's no possible way for you to show your faith apart from validating deeds. And that's why he comes back now and he is, is literally going to change the illustration up just a little bit. And you can see this uh, in verse 18. He says, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without any works and I will show you my faith by my works. And then he's going to come right to these people and he's going to say something amazing. You believe the right things about God. You believe that God is one. You do well. In other words, he's acknowledging that the content of their faith is accurate. You believe that God is one. This is right out of the the main theology of ancient Israel called the Shema in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, verse 4. The very first thing that a righteous Jew would say is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is what? One. And so behind that statement stands a whole theology, and James is saying, You believe all the right things. Now, can I just stop us here for a minute? And if I could, I'd come down and sit in the chair with you. And and, and here's what I'd like for us to do. I'd like for James to ask us that question this morning. I'd like for James to ask me that question. I'd like for James to ask you that question. Do you believe all the right things about God? Is your theology of salvation correct? And I would bet in a crowd this size that the vast majority of you would have the right belief about God. You would have the right theology about God. So listen to the next thing James says. Now, just pretend you've never read this passage before. Listen to the next thing that James says. You and the demons share the same belief. Would that get your attention? If all of a sudden James says, okay, you claim to have all of this good theology about God and about salvation, great. The the demons believe just like you believe. You can see it right in the text, right? I mean, he says, even the demons believe and they shudder. 
These demons know exactly who Jesus is. They know exactly who God is. They know he's real. They know that everything he says is true. They have the right belief, and it actually produces something in them. It produces terror in them because they know that their belief is not enough to deliver them from the wrath to come. I mean, here's, here's the point that James is making to these people. He's saying, actually, the demon's belief does something for them that your belief doesn't even do for you. The belief the demons have that you also have is correct, but it produces the right response in them. They are terrified because they know they will not escape the judgment of God. And somehow you've put your faith in this creedal belief and you think that it's going to deliver you from the coming wrath. That is a really shocking challenge. And and James says to them, the next thing he says in the text is this, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And so you can see that James now talks to this person and and he uses a word for him. He says, you are foolish. The word foolish is empty. That's That's literally the meaning of the word that James uses. You are an empty person. Whatever you have in your head has not filled your heart. You are an empty person and you do not possess the wisdom that God promised to those who have faith and you are morally apart from God. You, none of the mercy of God is flowing through you. If you can look at a person who's about to die of cold and, and, and to die of hunger and just say, hey, go, go in peace. Shalom, my brother. There's something morally wrong inside you if that is how you live out the faith from a God who gave you mercy. So by now, if you've been listening to James there is a pretty serious moment coming up here, and that is, all right, James, you're going to have to show me exactly what's going on here. Because if I have the same kind of faith that demons have, and that faith isn't enough to save, then what kind of faith saves? If I'm believing all the right things about Jesus, is there something I need to add to the content? No, there's nothing you need to add to the content. You are believing all the right things. You have put in your head, you've acknowledged the truth about Jesus. You know he's the son of God. You know that he came and was born of a virgin. You know that he lived a sinless life. You know that he died on the cross. You know that he rose again on the third day. And you're like, well, what what am I missing? What piece of information am I missing? And James would look at you and he would say, you're not missing any information. You're good on the information but your faith is dead. So what he does next is he gives a proof of this and he's going to introduce one of God's friends. Now there are five friends that we're going to meet in James. We're going to meet two of them in this passage and the other three we're going to meet in chapter five. But he introduces the first of God's friends, a man named Abraham, And he's going to make a statement that as someone who's grown up in evangelical circles ought to be shocking to us. And here's the statement. He has this question. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 
And it's clear from the way that James asked the question that he expects you to answer that question with a yes. And when I read that question, the first thing I want to say is what? No. And that should be the first thing that comes out of your mind. Because all through our Bible, we've been taught by the Apostle Paul that salvation is not by what? Works. In fact, Paul has some really clear statements about this in the book of Romans. And he actually tells Titus in chapter 3, really clearly, it is not by works of righteousness that we have done. So all of a sudden we have this question and if we're just sort of kind of, you know, just tooling around in James and we just kind of roll over it, we miss the big thing that James is about to teach us because this question is, is jarring. It is, it, 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 he's looking at Abraham and he's saying to you, now think about Abraham's life. Think about the greatest moment in Abraham's life, the day he offered Isaac up on the altar and ask yourself the question, wasn't Abraham justified by his works? And your answer should be yes. But my answer is, how can that be? And so there are two things we got to keep in mind here, all right? So I'm going to put the sermon on pause, and I want you to keep two things in mind, all right? Thing number one, the Bible is a unified message from a single author, which means this, it can't contradict itself. So whatever Paul is saying in Romans and whatever James is saying here are not contradictions. When we understand what is really going on, they're actually complementary. So thing number one we need to remember as we read our Bible is the Bible is a unified message from a unified God, and it's not going to contradict itself when it's properly interpreted. That's thing number one. Thing number two, context matters. Context matters. And so when we think about the context, James is actually asking and answering a very different question than Paul is asking and answering. When Paul wrote Romans and when he wrote Titus and when he wrote Ephesians, he was asking and answering this question. How does God give righteousness to a person? How does a man or a woman get righteousness from God? And Paul's answer to that is not by works, but by faith. That's the question, all right? Paul's question, how does a person get righteousness from God? Answer, not by works, but by faith. James has a very different question. How do I know that a person actually got righteousness from God? How do I know that the faith I had back there actually got me the righteousness that God promised? How do I know that? And James's answer is, well, what's coming out of your life? What's coming out of your life? If the faith you had back there isn't active, it's not producing anything, then, then, then it, it, it wasn't a saving faith. So this is the two things that are going on. So let's go back to the sermon. I'm going to hit the play button again, right? And so now there is this powerful proof that he's going to lay out. And and he's going to say some things about Abraham that I think you need to make sure 
you grasp. He's going to tell you that Abraham was justified when he believed. He was justified when he believed. Now, you can see that in verse 23. The scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So the first thing we're going to do is we sort of unpack this little illustration that James is, is doing is this. We're going we're to recognize that James actually agrees with Paul. When was Abraham justified? He was justified when he believed, just like the scripture says. He's going to tell you something else. <clears throat> Abraham's belief, his faith, was tested just like yours is tested. In chapter 1, right away, James says that the testing of our faith is going to happen. And so now we're going to see James bring a person who believed God and received righteousness, and that belief is now going to be tested. And so the test that happened happened at the end of, uh, toward the end of Abraham's life, and it was the test uh, that, that would prove whether Abraham really fully trusted God or not. And that's the third thing that James wants you to know. Our response to the test of our faith validates our standing before God by revealing whether our faith was real or not. Okay? Remember, James is talking about a certain kind of faith. Saving faith is wholehearted, it's single-focused, and it's fully trusting. That's the only kind of faith that saves. It is wholehearted, it is single-focused, and it is fully trusting. Any other kind of faith is a counterfeit faith. It is a dead faith. It is a useless faith. And James is very, very clear about this. So how do you know that Abraham had wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith when he believed back in Genesis 12 and again in Genesis 15? How do you know that? God tested it. And in Genesis 22, the very first thing God tells you is that I'm going to test Abraham. And he gives them this amazing test. And the book of Hebrews says, Abraham believed. He kept believing. He believed that no matter what God did, God would keep his promise. There was this amazing, unshakable, unswerving belief in God and complete devotion to God that manifested itself in faithful obedience to God, even in the hardest places and hardest spaces of life. And so Abraham trudges up the mountain with a 37-year-old son who's about to be sacrificed on the altar. You know what God said at the end of that test? In Genesis 22, he says, Abraham, now I know something. Now I know that you fear me. This was not that God didn't have that information before. This wasn't a surprise from God. God wanted you to know that. God wanted me to know that. So here is a man whose faith was active. You can see uh, in verse 22, you see that faith was active. And, and, and how is it active? Because it produced certain works of obedience to God. It, it did something when it encountered the word of God. It did something when it encountered the will of God. What did it do? It faithfully followed and it faithfully obeyed. Abraham's faith was faithful when it was tested. And then notice that tests 
even Abraham's mature and develop our faith. That's what James means when he says that Abraham's faith was completed by his works. It's not that somehow Abraham's faith was missing something or it was deficient or it wasn't saving enough. It was actually matured. Abraham's faith was deepened by his ongoing obedience. And this was certainly true throughout all of Abraham's life. There were times where in, in Abraham's journey, he, he encountered a test and he failed. You remember when he went down to Egypt and he told Sarah, Sarah, please tell Pharaoh, you're my sister. And God had to deliver from, him from that. And then years later, he's in, in another place and there's Abimelech, another king. And he says to Sarah, Sarah, I'm afraid again. Uh, please tell Abimelech, you're my sister. And God has to intervene. And so all along the way, this man's faith that is real, it is saving, it is wholehearted, single focus, fully trusting, is also being deepened. And that is exactly what God is doing in your life and in my life. This is why James is using this illustration. Which brings us to the next question, and that is this. Well, if that's how I get faith, if I get it like Abraham got it, by, by believing God, and, 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 and I now know how to recognize it in my life, I know that, that if it's really there, it's going to be producing works of obedience. How do I know it will really save me when I most need it? How do I know that when I get to the judgment day and I stand before God, it will really actually save me from the wrath of God? How do I know that? And James says, I'm really glad you asked that because I want to introduce you to the second friend of God. And her message is this, God's salvation has been proven. God's salvation has been proven. And so now he introduces you to a woman named Rahab, and he tells you a little bit about Rahab. Rahab is a Gentile. She's not, she's not in the line of Jewish people. She's a Gentile. She's a woman. And then she's at the very bottom of the moral scale. She's a prostitute. And something happens. God sends to her city that's about to be judged because her city is full of immoral idolaters. And God is about to judge the city and he sends messengers. Now, the book of Hebrews describes these people as spies. But James has another word for them. They're messengers. These people came into the city with a message. Very much like Jonah came into a city with a message. And Rahab heard the message. And she believed. She believed the words that she heard about this God that she had never heard about. She had heard that he existed and she had heard what he did to Pharaoh and to the armies, but now that he was going to destroy her city, she had to decide whether she was going to believe the message of the spies or not, the message of these messengers. How do you know that she believed? Well, James tells you she received the spies. She aligned herself with people who were coming to announce the destruction of her city. If you lived in her city, you would have a word for her besides prostitute. Now you would add a second word. She is a traitor. Because she aligned herself with the God who is going to destroy us. And by the way, isn't that what God's asking you to do? 
when you put your faith and trust in his son, Jesus Christ, who is one day going to come and judge this wicked world, isn't the gospel asking you to do what Rahab did? Isn't the gospel asking you to change sides? Isn't the gospel asking you to align differently? And so she did. She aligned. And then she actually obeyed. Because the spies said to her, now look, when we leave here, you take a scarlet cord and you hang it out your window and that's how we're going to know where you live. And when the day comes and we destroy the city, I promise you, we promise you, you will be delivered. Question, was Rahab delivered on the day judgment fell at Jericho? And the answer is what? Yes. Here's James' point. Will you be delivered when you have a living faith in a living God on the day he judges the world? Will you be delivered? And the answer is what? Yes. And it's not just that Rahab was delivered. Do you know what happened to Rahab? She ended up marrying a man named Salmon who was from one of the major tribes in Israel, the tribe of Judah. And they had a son. They had a little boy. Do you remember what his name was? Rahab. And Salmon had a little boy, and his name was Boaz. And Boaz grew up, and he married a Moabitess woman named Ruth. And they had a grandson, and their grandson was named David, who just happened to be the greatest king that Israel ever had until the coming of one of Rahab's descendants, Messiah, would arrive. And when that little boy was born to Mary, he grew up and saved the world. Did God deliver Rahab? And the answer is what? Yes. Why? Because she had faith. What kind of faith? A wholehearted, single-focused, fully-trusting faith. And how do you know that? Because of what it produced in her life. And that's James's final point. James says this, look, let me give you one final illustration. Think about a body that has no life. Think about a body that has no animating spirit. That body is dead. It's absolutely powerless to do anything. You say, well, Pastor Sam, I have this belief, but it's not producing anything. And no matter how I try, it's just not producing anything. Let me ask you a question. Could it be that the belief you have is just creedal belief? It's dead faith. You know, I go out every morning. I was talking to the kids, and I talk to those owls. And I tell those owls stuff. Like, you got to stop the chipmunks. You're doing this. This is terrible. And quit laying down. You can't let these chipmunks knock you over. You got to stand up. And find your beak. Get your beak back. And I can sit there and tell the owls to do all of these things. And the owls are just going to sit there or lie there in the dirt and do nothing. Why? Because they have no life animation. They're just plastic owls. And maybe the reason your faith is not producing anything that that looks like obedience to God or anything that looks like devoted passion for God or anything that looks like ongoing following of God, unless you think it's perfect, think about the times that Abraham fell. Think about the times that Abraham sinned in his journey. We're not talking about sinless following here. We're talking about devoted following. We're talking about devoted, obedient following. 
And maybe the reason that your faith isn't producing that is not because it's lacking in content. Maybe it's because it has no life. And James's point is this. A dead body has no life, and therefore it can't do anything. But it can do one thing. Here's what it can do. If you were a Jew and you touched a dead body, what would happen to you? You would become immediately ritually unclean. And your ritual uncleanness would keep you from entering into the presence of God. It's not just that your dead faith can't do something. It's that your dead faith will keep you from something. When James is talking about dead faith, he isn't talking to strangers. He's not talking to pagans. He's talking to people who come to church. And he's saying to them, let me ask you about your faith. The content is perfect. You don't need to add. It's not like you're you're missing something. You're not believing something you should believe. You're agreeing to all the right things. Your content is just fine. But your faith may be dead. It may be useless. It may be lifeless. It may be powerless. I don't know about you folks, but that ought, to, that ought to just terrify us. I mean, it ought to terrify us. Because the thing I most need my faith to do is to deliver me from the wrath of God on the day of judgment. Everything else my faith does is great. I mean, maybe it gives me a good sense of belonging. Maybe, maybe it gives me uh, just, you know, some, some measure of, of self-confidence or whatever. You know, whatever you think your faith does, all of the, you know, maybe it makes me a nicer person. Maybe it brings me to church on Sunday. Whatever my faith does that, that may, in your eyes or my eyes, be good, if it doesn't do the one thing I need it to do, if it doesn't deliver me from the wrath of God when I stand before God and I want to enter into his kingdom and I say to him, Lord, Lord, and he says, depart from me, I never knew you, then that faith was absolutely useless. It was worthless. And here's the point. I don't want to wait till I get there to find out whether my faith is useless or not. I want to know now. And James says, well, here's how you know now. What is it producing? When your brother comes in and he has nothing, or your sister comes in and they have nothing, what is your faith producing? Hey, be warmed and filled. Let me pray for you. Oh, go in peace. Shalom. May God bless you. If that's all your faith does when you meet a brother or sister that you know, that you're well acquainted with, whose life is in shambles, if that's really all you do and you can go away feeling good about yourself, let me just tell you something. Your faith is a faith you need to question. It's a faith you need to question. If you're the guy that's grabbing the towel in the basin, you're like, hey, let me wash your feet. Hey, let me show you. Hey, look at me. I'm a servant. Let me make a point. Let Let me show you how good a servant I am. And then there's real, real submission that needs to happen in your life. Some authority asks you to do something. You're like, I'm not doing that. But man, I got the the basin. I got the towel. I'm ready to wash your feet. You may not need it. You may not want it. But I'm washing them anyway because I want you to know something. I'm a servant. James says, you know what? You better check your faith because that kind of a faith will not deliver you on the day you stand 
to be judged. It's like, well, let me tell you what I believe. And man, you can list out all the theological finer points of anything. You're, you got like, your doctrine is just extensive. It's framed out. I mean, it, but it's not producing obedient faithfulness in your life. James is saying to you, you know what? You need to stop and you need to test your faith. You need to test your faith. You say, well, what do I need to do? You need to do what Jesus did. You know what Jesus did? He just believed I mean, he really believed, wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting. You know what he believed? He's, here's what he believed. He believed God. He didn't just believe in God. He actually believed God. And when God said to him, I am not going to allow my Holy One to see physical corruption, Jesus believed that. And one Friday, that belief was put to the test. When he had to decide, am I going to let these human beings take away my life on this cross? And am I going to trust God that when they take away my life, he's going to give it back? You know what Jesus did? He stretched out his hands. Can you imagine being on the execution squad that day, Roman soldier? And... What do you do with a guy like Jesus? There's no cursing coming out of his mouth. There's no threats. There's, there's nothing. He, he, he volunteered. You don't have to hold his arms down. He just puts his arms down. And then as you're nailing him to the cross, there's words coming out of his mouth, but you've never heard words like this before. Father, forgive them. Forgive them. You're like, you have no idea who you're nailing on that cross. Trust me, you don't want to stand before his father on the day of judgment. And Jesus is going, no, 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 forgive them. Forgive them for they know not what they do. Where did that come from? A wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith in God. And on Sunday morning, God validated it. God announced it to the world. And that faith is available to you if you'll do two things, if you'll repent and believe, if you'll put a wholehearted, fully trusting, single-focused faith in God. Now, my question to you is this. Have you done that? I don't know. I don't know if I've done it, Pastor. Look at your life. What does your life say? what do I do? Humble yourself. Just humble yourself. Say, God, I, I am afraid I have a dead faith and I want mercy. I want the mercy that triumphs over judgment. I want that mercy. And God said, it's available to anybody who wants it. Hey, I gave it to Abraham. And I gave it, I gave it to a patriarch and I gave it to a prostitute. There's no partiality with God. And when you come, you know what God's going to say? Welcome. Mercy. Mercy.